0: I invite you to turn your Bibles to Titus 3. Our goal today will be to cover three verses uh, in entirety. Um, so we're going to be looking at a passage, I think pastorally, as I've been praying through this. Um, I'm convinced it will be a little bit of God stepping on our toes a little bit as a congregation. And so just, just know that... Um, I prayerfully present this to you as God's word to you. And I trust that whatever is of Brent Belford would cease or fall about, you know, wouldn't even make it off the platform, uh, but whatever is of God would pierce to uh, the inner part of our being to separate what is good from bad, to enable us to walk before outsiders in ways that God would be honored and glorified with. Paul's been offering insightful help to Cretan believers, uh, believers from the island of Crete, uh, in the book of Titus, and he's done so about the behavior that should spring forth from the gospel of Christ. Um, Throughout the book, he shows the balance of right or true doctrine and how that must impact genuine Christian behavior. Last week, if you were here, we considered the way Paul motivates um, believers to behave properly in the home. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, he went through a list of different responsibilities for young men and older men, young women, older women, and masters uh, and bond servants. And, and then in verses 11 through 14, he gives them not only motivation to function in those ways, but he shows them how it is possible. They must do so because God has given the ability to function this way in the home because of the appearances of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. The grace demonstrated in Jesus' first coming and the glory that will soon be uncovered at his second coming make it possible for believers to persevere in the faith and fulfill their responsibilities in the home. So what he's doing in chapter 2 is the equivalent of setting the expectations and then showing how these expectations are possible. I've got to do a little cleanup from last week. Last week I gave the illustration of my son when he was in junior high. Remember I had to sit him down, tell him our expectations. I did want to communicate to you in that sermon, but I'm doing so today that I am so thankful for how my son has responded over the years. Now as a young adult man, uh, just just even the, the joy yesterday of seeing him on a football field before the game, bowing with six or seven other men, worshiping his Savior before the game. Is a joy. Anyway, cleaned up. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, my wonderful wife, for telling me I needed to do that. <laughs> the illustration was meant to show that uh, we needed to reveal our expectations uh, to him and then remind him that God had given him the ability and the power to do it. That's what Paul does with the believers on creed. He has given them the ability to accomplish his purposes in the home by the first and the second comings of Jesus Christ. Now, this fits within a pattern in Titus. In Titus chapter 1, Paul deals with how they are to function in the church. In Titus chapter 2, how they're to function in the home. And then in chapter 3, the the text we look at today, how they should behave in public with outsiders. And so uh, in chapter 3, the argument is much like chapter 2. He gives his expectations and then he tells them how it's possible. And so uh, Paul turns his attention at the beginning of chapter 3 to the way that we, we must treat others outside the church and home. And although these are but very brief summary statements, they are important because they reveal what is our basic heart attitude toward outsiders. Okay, And it starts in an area that is going to be sensitive for us in our culture. It starts with governing authorities and rulers. Okay, So look in your Bible at verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to Rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Here Paul starts in verse 1 with the objects of our behaviors in this passage. He describes the objects or the subjects as rulers and authorities, and there's little question if you read in any of the commentary literature that Paul has political, or governing rulers and authorities in his perspective here. He's describing how Cretan believers should behave toward governing authorities on their island. I want to warn you that verse 1 might be really challenging for many of us in the way we view things in our world. Again, it's so simple. Remind them the text says, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every good work. So here we go. Ready? Ready for these? Ready for the toes to be stepped on. Pull them back. Although there are places in Scripture where believers have to stand or had to stand against corrupt government, that was forbidding them to practice religion. I think of Daniel, the Old Testament. I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. their fiery furnace experience. Or there were times when believers had to, um, were, were challenged to take innocent lives like the Hebrew midwives in the Old Testament. And they had to stand against that. Paul writes this to believers to remind us of our our fundamental attitude toward rulers and authorities. Some believers immediately object at this point. You can't even get these words out without them raising their hand in class, right? Saying, but aren't there times when we're supposed to object when they disobey God? And and I get that. I understand Why? That is an attitude and response. We are saddened as believers about our culture and the decisions sometimes that our government makes. We're angered by what's going on in our culture and country. We might not like what our president or governor or mayor is doing. We might not appreciate what some senators or representatives are doing. We do not agree with their godless agenda or agendas. We don't agree with them rejecting God or redefining behavior to affirm lifestyles that the scriptures identify as sinful. We don't agree with them standing in opposition to the principles and practices of God. Yet sometimes all of that and our responses to it lead to resentment, anger, and perhaps even anarchy as believers. It might come from fear, a fear of what things will be like for our children or grandchildren. I think that's legitimate. Like, some of us really fear that kind of stuff, what our country will be like in those ways. This text, however, gets to the heart of how we should respond to government that is populated by unbelievers. Now, at this time on the island of Crete, believers experience great threats to their religion and existence by the Roman government. It strikes me as incredible that Paul would write this likely a few months before he's imprisoned a second time by Roman officials, and that eventually leads to his martyrdom for the name of Jesus Christ. Yet Paul does not write this of his own accord. God encourages or leads him to write this. We might think, what a waste. We might think, how could he say these things about human government when he's just about ready to be murdered by them? Well, this comes from Paul and God. This is fundamental to who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. Okay, So the fundamental heart posture that believers should have toward governing leaders is pictured first in this text with the verb be submissive to be submissive to this calls us to the recognition and acceptance of authority that God has ordained through appropriate attitudes and actions on our part that is it is appropriate for us to voluntarily submit to our governing leaders This means that we avoid rebellion and anarchy, and we realize that God holds us accountable to the leaders that he has appointed for us in government. And not only are we to submit to our leaders, the text says we're also to obey them. This means we listen to them. We obey them. Ironically, it's this infinitive. This this infinitive, to obey, is not used very much in the New Testament. But one of the other occurrences of it is Acts chapter 5, where the disciples are pressured by the council to quit preaching the name of Jesus, not to proclaim his name anymore, and they say, they object, ought we not to obey God rather than man? They use the same word there, obey God rather than man. In that passage, the disciples were forbidden from speaking in Jesus' name, but they chose to disobey because that would be disobeying Christ. In this passage, however, we see that Paul feels that it's quite important to remind believers that their fundamental commitment to governing authorities is to submit to and obey them even if those governmental authorities were, uh, had the name Caesar or Herod or Pilate or Felix or Festus. Okay, not a who's who of leaders we would want to nominate and elect in our culture today. Uh, Today, pastorally, kindly, I'm pushing back against a little bit about how some fume, vent, and rant against political authorities. I'd say this. I don't think I am. I think Paul is. God is. He says submit to and obey. That's our fundamental heart posture. Uh, Perhaps another text would be helpful. So you know Pastor Brent's not just like walking out on a board that everyone's going to cut off from him today. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 2 for a moment. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I want to read a few verses here. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1, 2, 3, 4. I don't know when I'm going to stop. It's such a good passage. 1 Timothy 2, 1. First of all, I exhort that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people... For kings, for all those in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, dignified in every way. Verse 3, this is good. It's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people, To be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth here we learn these verses that we must be thoroughly peaceful quiet godly and dignified i say thoroughly because it's in every way by the way dignified could be translated meek like christ not that we would be contentious hostile loud and angry peaceful quiet godly dignified And we're to be constantly and thoroughly praying for our spiritual leaders. So, thoroughly praying for them. What do you mean? Supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving for kings and for all those who are in authority. We should be praying for them. How should we be praying for our political leaders? That they might be saved. Because God desires for all people to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So, in a brief pastoral word, I ask you to consider your favorite political talk show and ask, what effect is it having on you? What effect is it having on you? Is it stirring you up to anger, to bitterness? To negative cynicism? Or is it stirring you to pray? To pray for their lostness? We read Luke 15, and in every piece of that narrative, there are three parts. Every part of that mentions those who are lost. Would you commit this week to spend more time praying for our political authorities? than you would listening to your favorite political commentary. We should be thoroughly praying that God would work and understand a few things about them. They're unbelievers. They're knowing they're doing what they know to do. That is following the world, the flesh, and the devil we should remember, and this is where Paul's going to go in the text, that we would be there too. We would be there too. If it weren't for the grace of God. Now in Titus, we go back to Titus for a second here. The text adds that we must have a heart posture of submission under and obedience to our authorities and then that we will be ready for every good work. Verse 1. That is, we will be prepared to practice observable, spirit-filled Christian living when we don't give all of our energies to oppose, but we, we give our energies then to demonstrate the aggressive goodness in our culture that God has called us to good works. This is the high call of Paul in the whole book. This is what Paul's been telling them over and over and over again. Okay, so our commitment to outsiders starts first with our authorities and rulers. We submit to them as far as we can. We obey them, and we're ready to perform good works in our culture. Um, That leads to verse two, and I wish I could say it was easy gets easier here, right? Or maybe that is done stepping on toes, but this continues. Look at verse 2. This is our commitment involving social graces to those outside the church and the home. It says, To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. In verse 2, Paul widens the scope to demonstrating social graces to all others outside the home. Gives us four commitments that we should have, two positive, two negative. Starts as the two negative. First, believers are to slander no one, to speak evil of no one. Okay? And this is a high and difficult calling for us as Christians. As followers of Jesus, we must be careful to avoid speaking evil about other people uh, in the culture, outside the culture, right? I think it's implied both in the church and beyond, but I think the focus is primarily on people outside the church. We should speak evil of no person. And the reason that's hard is because of what James says in James chapter 3. You remember that passage? James 3, verse 5, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird or reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by, man- by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. Continues. It's a restless evil. It's full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people. James says that's such a contradiction. People who are made in likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not so to be. And so this first kind of social grace that's expected of the church is that we would tame that tongue. That we would speak evil of no person. And I'm reminded as well, not only of James, but of his half-brother. You know, Jesus, the Son of God who said in Matthew chapter 12 that every idle word that is spoken will have eschatological consequences in God's judgment. Or as Jesus says, it, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you'll be justified, by your words you'll be condemned. Okay, so as I'm thinking of our social graces, what is expected for us as we relate to people in our culture, we start here. We say we should not say an evil thing about any person. All people. And boy, that's hard sometimes. There are people I sure want to say an evil thing about. We're in our assembly here. No evil word about anyone. Then he says, remind them to avoid quarreling. The island of Crete was known for its social disturbances and rowdy bickering. Already read, all Cretans are, are lazy, brute beasts and gluttons. Something to that effect. But Christians on Crete were to be different than that. They were to avoid picking verbal fights with others. No quarrelings. Then they're to be gentle instead of retaliating when they've been wrong. Their heart posture is one of gentleness. The culture, kindness, could be translated. Then finally they're to show, verse 2, perfect courtesy toward all people. Thorough considerateness of others that they would come in contact with on the island of Crete. This is how we're supposed to treat people outside of the church and home. Paul describes, I think, behavior that is springing forth from sound doctrine. This is what godliness and good works look like for those who've embraced the gospel of Christ. Okay? So that's verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2 talk to us about how we should treat outsiders. Okay? Simple summaries, really hard, really hard for us to live out. Now, verses 3 and beyond are connected to these verses in a very important way I want you to see. Uh, Today we're only going to deal with verse 3, but uh, the next two weeks we'll deal with verses 4 through 11, which continue to give us information about how we should conduct ourselves with outsiders. Okay, So what I want to do is I want to start by reading verses 3 through 11, and then I'll I'll tell you kind of big picture what's going on in this passage, then we'll look at verse 3 and be done. Okay, so Titus chapter 3 and verse 3. It says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing all our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another, We might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. It's an interesting transition. You go from governing leaders, how we approach them, into outsiders, or be gentle and kind with them and then you get into the section where paul describes what we once were And to me there are two keys to understanding the big picture of what's going on here. I think verse 3 Points forward and backward The first word if you notice in verse 3 is the word for Which reveals that paul's giving us the ground or the basis for why we should be kind to outsiders why we should submit to governing authorities and rulers. And his reason is because we all, we all were like that at one time. Led astray, deceived, disobedient, foolish. So I think what he does in verse 3 is he, he reminds us as followers of Jesus Christ. And this is one of the things, as we listen to and hear cultural voices, do you remember this is the way we all were? This is what we are outside of Christ. So be gracious. Submit to. Love. Pray for But then, I I think it's connected forward to verses 4 through 7 by by also, he doesn't just stop on what we were. He he points forward to what God did. What God did to save us and rescue us. And and I think that that not only is intended for our edification, it's to demonstrate, perhaps like 1 Timothy was doing, that, Our God longs to save outsiders. He longs to save the lost. And so uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at verse 3 here at the beginning. And uh, we're going to consider what we were, what we once were. Okay. In verse 3, Paul describes our previous lives in eight ways, four groups of two. And I can go pretty quickly through them. He says, first, you were foolish and disobedient. This is what we were. We were as fallen sinners before our conversion. We were mentally and morally depraved. That's what John Stott says I think is really good for these first two. You were foolish mentally and disobedient, morally depraved. We were led astray. This means we were deceived. And uh, number two, we were slaves to various passions and pleasures. We were enslaved to our own many and diverse sinful desires and indulgences. When I read this, I think of Ephesians 2. It says we were dead in trespasses and sins, following after the course of this world. I also think of a pastor's conference we had this past week where I heard uh, my cousin Brian Blazowski preaching, and, well, really teaching, but then preach, uh, about what we were outside of Jesus Christ. It was so powerful. If there's a way to get that audio, I'd encourage you to listen to it. He says we were enslaved, condemned, and cursed by sin and death and our flesh and the law and the evil authorities and powers, uh, supernatural powers of this world. But God made us alive. In our previous life, we were enslaved to many and diverse sinful desires and indulgences. And, Paul describes it in just another vivid way, we were passing our days, walking through life in two ways, in malice and in envy, in evil and envy. We lived all of our days, we were consistently wishing evil upon people or craving what good they had for us. And Paul says as well, and finally, that we were hated by others. Loathsome and despicable in culture, that was their view, and we were actively hating one another. The obvious antithesis to the Christian demand to love one another. We weren't doing that, we were hating one another. That was our fallen sinful condition before the fall. As we look at uh, verses 1 through 3, I think it really gets to a, a very important subject for us today, and that is, how do you view the culture and society? We might close with two important ways I think this text informs us to see things. First, we should see culture as fundamentally sinful, opposed to God, and as a result, under his wrath and judgment. That's number one. We should see it that way. Fundamentally sinful, opposed to God, under his wrath and judgment. But secondly, and this informs it too, and this is what I've been heading on today, we should, we, we should remember that we too were filled with sinful opposition to God and others. I think when we Approach things in this way, it fills us with compassion for unbelievers in our government and in society who are under the judgment of God. And I think it protects us from the vitriol and the bitter anarchy that strips our testimony of the power of God and the meekness and the kindness and the love of our savior Jesus Christ. You see what they need? Sometimes you're saying, "I can't believe those people. What's wrong with them?" What they need is what God gave us in Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We were lost, but God saved us. They are lost. Let's pray and demonstrate grace so they too can be found. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, it's so difficult for us to read these passages and not want to interject things we here be submissive to and obey rulers and authorities. And we want to go, yeah, yeah, but... Lord, help us to get this fundamental heart posture down. And may we do so so that we be ready for every good work in our culture. It's so easy for us to hear speak evil of no one and say, yeah, but what about Him. Or her. Or other outsiders outside the church. But God, help our fundamental heart posture be that we would commit not to quarrel and not to say evil things about anyone. And may we do so because we remember. Lord, help us remember what we once were. Foolish. Disobedient. We were led astray. Help us remember these things. And then rejoice in that it was God on no account of our own works of righteousness, who chose to save us. You saved us when we were sinners. Lord, help us live in these ways socially. Help us to demonstrate these graces so that we might be used of you to draw people to that same saving grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.